Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School, and I head up the Policy and Inequality Research Centre and the Children's Policy Centre. And I'm back again today in the next of our series on the wellbeing economy with Anna Greta Hunter. Hi, Sharon. It's great to be here. I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and member of the ANU Medical School. I'm also the Human Futures Fellow here at ANU this year. And Anna Greta and I are back with you today having a ball talking to some incredible people about how we can transform the economy, how we can transform our societies and our way of thinking. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net. It's produced right here at the Crawford School of Public Policy, which is Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. Don't forget to check out our range of degree programs, short courses and executive education. We've got some amazing things on offer. And next year, we're going to be offering an exciting combined model of face-to-face and online teaching. So see what's on offer at crawford.anu edu.au slash study. So over the past five episodes, we've explored the ideas of current neoliberal economics. We've looked at the relationship between economics, our environment, our society, our health, and we've seen quite clear evidence, I think, that a better economic system would improve all three areas of our lives. And we've discussed some of the frameworks that might help us to change. We had an amazing conversation around universal basic income. We've talked about carbon pricing or even carbonomics. And we've, of course, spent much of our time thinking about what well-being might be and how we use economics to achieve well-being, a model that might consider the environmental, social and economic costs in all policy decisions. So this week, we come to practicalities. This particular episode, we want to spend time talking to experts who can help us to understand how to engage in community discussions. How can we modify ideas to suit particular groups and how do we achieve change in practice? And we have two fantastic guests to talk through these issues with us today. Sharon, can you tell us about our guests? 
Yeah, we do have two incredible guests, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We have Dr. Millie Rooney, who is the National Coordinator of Australia Remade, a network of civil society leaders promoting a vision of the country that we're aiming for and the systems that are needed to create a different type of society. Um, and if you haven't seen Millie's website, do check out Australia Remade. You can just put it into a search engine yeah. and find it. It's Highly really worth having a look at. Yep. It, it's great. We also have Carolyn Hendricks with us. Carolyn is Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School. Her most recent book, Mending Democracy, Democratic Repair in Disconnected Times, written with Selen Erkan and John Boswell, has just been released. And it's a brilliant account not only of the roadblocks democracy has hit, but what everyday people are doing in their local communities to fix it. And of course... This is so interesting because it indicates that people consider democracy to be valuable and to be worth rescuing. The book describes small facts that speak to large issues, as the introduction explains, nodding to the great anthropologist Clifford Geertz. So I think we're in for a fantastic discussion today. Carolyn and Millie, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having us, Sharon and Anna Greta. Thank you. Carolyn, perhaps we can start with you. We want to talk about how democracy is being mended. But first, why is democracy in need of repair? Can you talk us through some of the problems that have been encountered within the communities that you've been working in that have triggered people to want to act? The metaphor in the book that we're using is is a fabric metaphor that 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 democracy is more than just institutions. It's actually an interconnected system. So we're using this metaphor of a, an intact material, if you like, that's woven together by not just institutions and processes, but but people and and relationships and groups and all those things together when they're functioning well and when communication across all those institutions and groups and the public sphere is functioning well, that fabric is intact. But what, what we argue in the book is that democracy in many parts, the integrity of that fabric is really wearing thin in, in, in particular parts of the system. And what, what we've observed and, and what we take particular issue with is, is the, the following three kind of integrity problems, if you like. So we look at, I guess, one of the, the, the fundamental challenges in, in modern democracy is a growing sort of weakness or disconnect between elected members or representatives, elected representatives and their constituents. So this is something that I, we all observe and feel that we, we don't really know who our elected representatives are or how they're trying to relate to us and what they're representing and voting on. The second sort of weakness that we talk about in the book is a, is a weakness in the public sphere, a, a disconnect between often polarised publics with, with people in the, in the public sphere not listening to each other or not willing to have conversations across difference. And this is a fundamental problem for our democracies if people aren't willing to engage in diverse conversations. We're all just talking amongst our own little, in our silos. And the third disconnect, which is particularly relevant to public policy, is that disconnect we all sort of feel between our complex systems of governance and the, and the services that we get 
through our through our governments and 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 everyday citizens that there's this impenetrable sort of uh, monolithic state that most of us find really hard to navigate and a disconnect there. So the book is really trying to say, well, what can we do about it repairing these particular kind of weaknesses in our system? And I love that fabric metaphor. I think that just works so well. And it speaks to the depth and the, the multidimensional nature of democracy. I guess the, the kinds of challenges that you map out where we're seeing often globally, um, we're certainly seeing challenges to democracy globally, um, not least in the United States, but in many parts of the world. Your work has been in um, small communities or, or rural communities, I should say, in Australia, in Wangaratta and in Coonabarabran. Um how representative do you think that those issues that you've mapped out that you see in Australia, how representative do you think they are of challenges in other parts of the world? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the book is using a case-based approach. So we're trying to really um, take a, a very in-depth empirical look at what people who are, f- who are facing these kinds of democratic dis- disconnects, what are they doing? So I should say just, just by way of context, most of the proposals to fix these disconnects that I've sort of laid out, um, on the t- the most common proposals that are put forward are institutional reform or procedural reforms. And I guess in the book we're saying we're not saying that those sort of reform ideas have no place, but what we're saying is that these this this fabric the 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 weaknesses across this fabric are so systemic that we actually need a broader way of thinking about reform. And so we go into these communities um, and in in the case of the UK, we look at um, the NHS system and what bureaucrats are doing there. We look at what everyday actors in our political system are doing. So everyday um, citizens, everyday um, community groups, MPs and even, you know, public servants. And we go and sort of have a look at what they're trying to do to to, to repair democracy in, in small ways. And so the two Australian case studies that you mentioned, one is on the electorate of Indi, so that's based in and around northeast Victoria in, in rural and regional Australia. Um, and the second one is is about a uh, sort of colourful protest group that's up in northern New South, well, northwestern New South Wales. And those two case studies, I guess, we find very illuminating because they're really showing us that there are different ways to engage in democracy. It doesn't have to be about either being angry and, and protesting or about sort of disengaging, which are the two main sort of ways in which political scientists characterise democratic participation today. They say, look, people are either completely disenfranchised and they're they're just rejecting democracy or they're getting angry and they're going out in the streets through large protest movements and Black Lives Matter sort of things and occupy. And those things are happening. But what we want to do in this book is really try and point to some very small hidden sort of activities that people are engaging in. And and what we find is that people are being very resourceful. They're actually trying to make the democratic system work as it should. I guess they're saying, look, we have higher standards and we want to push forward some different ways um, of getting the, the system to work. Fantastic. It's so interesting, I think, looking at how things actually work in practice on the ground. And uh, that's the the main stuff we really wanted to talk about today is how you do achieve change. Millie, you and I have had some interesting conversations over the last couple of months. And just recently, you made a comment that you think GDP can be used often as a proxy for the government, for the for the public good, and that there are much better ways for us to think about the public good. 
I know you're doing some very interesting work with communities both in Tasmania and on the mainland about how we assess and think about the public good. Uh, Could you give us a little bit of background on that work? Yeah, and I mean, it's fantastic, Carolyn, to hear you talk about um, ideas about weaving the fabric of, of society and democracy together and the weakness in the public sphere because that that's really tapping into some of the work that we're doing. So we've been at Australia Remade really trying to go back to the basics of what is it that we as a country agree on or, or why do we do what we do as a country? How do we make decisions? Like why do we make decisions? And in doing some work on that and asking, well, what is the public good? You know, with this year with COVID and the bushfires, people have started to really recognise the value of things like um, publicly owned media, um, health services, um, fire services, you know, the way our welfare system has been able to be used in in new ways that help more people imperfectly, um, but, but still being kind of suddenly used for the public good. And people are seeing that very visibly. And so we've been asking, well, what is the public good and why do we do what we do as a country? And in doing so, recognising that we've basically made GDP the kind of proxy for the public good. So if GDP is going well, if we're told the economy is going well, then clearly the public must be good, you know, we're all good. Um, But I'm having conversations with people around the country and delving into those ideas a little bit more and thinking about, well, the public good is, you know, the infrastructure and the material kind of physical things like schools, hospitals, um, park benches, sewerage systems, Um, but it's also contextual things and rules like a safe climate, um, clean air, clean water, democracy, Um, and it's also people's capacity to participate in community and also to maintain the public good, so um, faith groups, time, culture, community. And I'm really hearing, interestingly, Carolyn, um, that people are wanting to reach out across the polarised, across polarisation, across difference and, you know, recognising that we do have quite a weak public sphere um, but that people are desperate for ways to participate, to build that up and to be brought together across difference. Um, and so that, that's been a really interesting part of our work is asking, well, yeah, why do, what we, why do we do what we do and why would we use GDP as a proxy for the public good? And, and when you're talking to people about this, uh, are you finding that there's a political polarisation or are you finding these sorts of opinions are in fact uh, present across the political spectrum? I mean, that that's the most kind of wonderful thing about the work that I get to do is I don't know who where people sit on the political spectrum as I ask them these questions. So the very simple question that I'm asking people is, you know, what public good do you want available to you in your community? And then how or who should provide that. Um, and in many, many cases, as I'm having these group conversations, it won't be until afterwards that I suddenly think, whoa, you have a really different political perspective to to where I thought you were going to land with that. Because we're, we're coming back to the commonalities and the values that we share. So we can have these great conversations of people, you know, people are talking about wanting jobs, wanting um, meaningful jobs, uh, wanting health, access to healthcare, um, access to nature and housing, you know, the ones that come up really quickly and the value of wanting to belong in community. You know, that that almost is the number one thing that I'm hearing across the country, across the political spectrum, is people just saying, I want to belong in my community. I want to be proud of my community 
and I want to contribute. And I think we're at a really kind of exciting point here of people are desperate to, I don't think people want to go back to normal. I think people want to be part of creating something beautiful and part of the creation of that something beautiful is, you know, participating in the work in Indi or the protest groups or wherever it is. It's it's finding a way to weave themselves into that fabric and to be to be woven in. And I'm finding that the public good as a language is pretty inoffensive, you know. So, so you're not instantly polarizing people. You're getting people to think about, yeah, why, why do we do what we do? What, what do we want? And going from a, a quite a, a general entry point to that conversation. Millie, one of the things that you mentioned when you were talking about the different things that people want and the different things that people talk about was time. And that's something that's come up on this series a number of times, um, is the the desire that people have to have the opportunity to do more with their time than work for pay, you know, to engage in their communities, to engage in caring work, to do a whole range of things that our professional or working lives often prevent us from doing. I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about what people are saying to you about the value of time, the time burdens they might be under and how they would like to see time play out differently in their lives. Yeah, I mean, I think COVID has obviously really changed time for many of us. And speaking to people in lockdown in Victoria, um, you know, I'm getting mixed responses of people saying, you know, I I suddenly realised I don't have to run to the gym and do 57,000 different things. I'm, I'm getting time to be at home with my family, time to be physically grounded in my community, um, you know, get to know my neighbours. And I think that that's, I'd be interested in Carolyn's thoughts on this, but I think that's one of the biggest blockers to people I speak with is, you know, yes, I want to participate in democracy actively, not just at once, not once every three years voting, but I want to actively participate, but I don't have time. Um, and I think Partly that's because we're maybe not imaginative enough about how we could use our time and feel fulfilled. But I think, you know, very much the reality that that people have mortgages, people have bills, and we don't have a confidence as a community that if, you know, um, something happens in our family, the main breadwinner can't earn the money, I don't think we trust as a community that we are going to be cared for. And I think that's, you know, we're slowly, we're seeing... Um, you know, some of that that universalism and that universal care be undermined. But we're also with COVID seeing, you know, the, the welfare system, suddenly a lot more people were seeing what it was like to be on Centrelink and recognising the value of being universally supported. So I think people are able to take more risks um, and be more willing to contribute time at the expense of, of income if they're going to feel supported in an emergency and and feel like I can contribute to community and then community will will care for me. And I, I think until we get that universalism back at the heart of, of what we do, I, I think that's going to be a challenge. And that's an extraordinary point to make. I think that, that we all need to foster confidence that we can be cared for within our society and that if we can create that, that there is space then for people to do things that will care for each other. There's a um, an extraordinary uh, self fulfilling prophecy element to that. Um, 
Carolyn, it's really interesting to think about these local solutions uh, and what sort of local solutions might might be available to us. Um, and and in your work, whether the some of the issues that Millie's raised might be playing across communities um, in in the conversations that you're having. Um, what are the the conversations that you've had around the public good? Um, and what are your thoughts on Millie's assessment so far? Oh, look, I just find it really fascinating because I think. People are rethinking what 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 they value, and I, this is particularly in in COVID times. But but I think even before that, people um, confront kind of moments in their life, or they might have a bushfire at their doorstep. I mean, these 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 individual personal crises or a, a large societal crisis will make people rethink what they value. Um, so I, I definitely think this COVID has triggered um, people's way of thinking about time, where they invest their time, and also their relationship to place. I think Millie's kind of reflections on that sort of place-based participation and people wanting to connect with community is something that resonates with me. A lot of my research um, has been in rural and regional areas where people have traditionally had a strong place-based connection. But our political system and our often our decision-making systems aren't often locally place-based. So if you think about a lot of our federal electorates, particularly in rural and regional Australia, they're huge and communities don't have an identity around those place, those those, those institutional structures. And so what, what I've observed, and especially in the electorate of Indi, but this is happening all over Australia at the moment, you know, there are communities realising that they um, they have a connection to place and that place connection is can be shared and they have commonalities. I think that's another thing that, that Millie said that really resonated and that through those commonalities and those positive things that, that we share in those um, those places, we can form an identity that helps us then have better political representation. And that's essentially what the Voices for Indi group managed to achieve um, in in electing an, you know, an independent and then a successive independent. That's never been done in Australia before and they did it through recognition of place um, but also through, and this is another element that, that threaded through um, Millie's comments, was about this creativity, this participation wasn't like, I'll come along to a town hall meeting. It was actually about having fun, weaving social opportunities into political participation and campaigning, making it relational. I mean, these are all things I think that we don't typically do when we run a consultation event. They're not sort of um, aspects we design in, but that's how people want to connect and engage um, in politics and social issues now. They want to feel like they're getting more out of it than just giving something to government. Carolyn, how has all of that changed people's lives or communities within Indi? Not so much, you know, on a on a person by person basis, but in terms of the way people connect with their communities and connect to their places. Have you seen a change over time in what that desire to participate has, has resulted in and in what um, the success of having their own representative um, has has done for people in that particular electorate. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a you know there's a almost eight years of kind of journey that they've been on, and they're they're still on it with with the wonderful work of Helen Haynes at the moment as their um, representative. I mean, the first thing I think that they really have changed is is the capacity to listen. So this is not just getting the MP to listen, but actually listening amongst each other. So they did a lot of work through um, small informal processes called kitchen table conversations, but these could be any any kind of process that tries to just 
uh, allow people to learn or relearn the craft or the art of listening. That, that's how some interviews interviewees have explained it to me. So this is about actually affording people the gift of listening. So tell me what you like about living in this place and I'm going to actually listen to you. So from the, the, from the go-get, they tried to allow people to connect and listen. And then from that, they built a very positive kind of way of approaching democratic reform. So it wasn't a negative space. So people were invited to be the best self. They were invited to to think positively about how they might contribute. So some people didn't want to go door knocking and campaigning. It wasn't their style, but they could sew and knit. And so they they contributed other things that made the campaign fun and colourful. So it's about, I guess, trying to um, let people participate in ways that they can in w- when they can. And there's broader political research that, that bears that out. But most of that's around sort of more antagonistic forms of participation. And I think what, what the story of Indi, and there's lots of other communities around Australia and the world doing this, is really trying to show um, that it's actually about connections between each other and with the MP. And I think one of the things that the MPs have done, like it's a it's a dialect. It's actually not just about communities reaching out. It's actually about the elected representatives listening and acting and delivering. And what Helen Haynes and Kathy McGowan before um, her managed to do so effectively was actually build capacity in the community. So she wasn't promising that she was going to act on every single thing that the community wanted or every advocacy group demanded of her, but she seeded relationships and she facilitated connections and enabled people to understand how politics in Canberra works. And that has has had huge ripple effects in terms of empowering other people to stand forward at local and state government level. So yeah, I think I think we're still yet to see how that kind of way of representing is going to play out. But but I think there's a, a community there that has a lot of confidence in how their democratic system can be used. I was going to I confess to being a part-time resident of the federal city of Indi um, and look, my subjective experience living there is that the community has more confidence, that we're much more likely to get together and talk about a local issue, that it's a common thing to sit down and nut out a problem with your neighbours or with, with your local community um, and there's a confidence that if we do that, something comes from it, something good will will occur. Um, and so I think that that change of political environments translated to quite significant significant and discernible change on the ground, on the street. I think that's a a great place for us to take a short break um, and to come back and delve a little deeper into some of these issues and how things are actually playing out on the ground. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hotplate every Monday and Thursday. 
Okay, so welcome back. It's uh, been a fantastic conversation so far with Carolyn Hendricks and Millie Rooney. We're talking about how to achieve change at a local level, how we can take some of these amazing ideas that we've talked about in the last couple of episodes and, and see that translate to really improve lives on the ground. And so moving through to a discussion of some practical solutions, we might start by getting Millie to talk a little bit about this extraordinary group, Australia Remade. It's a network of leadership that aims to find solutions, Millie. And the description of that network and its origin are really powerful. I think the words you use is that you are, that we are a voice for the new paradigm, one forged in the fires of climate emergency, the inequity of equality and the obvious failings of business as usual, one in which everything is connected, our economy serves people and nature and democracy is something we do. Could you tell us a little bit more about what Australia Remade is doing in local communities? One of the wonderful things and difficult things, I think, about the work that we do is that it is very much um, a, a kind of a spirit in the way of doing things and some underlying theoretical frameworks and very much built on the idea that um, knowing where we're going, knowing what we want, um, kind of going there joyfully Um saying yes rather than saying no to things, um, that that is a really essential part of how we're going to win the world that we want. And, you know, for me personally, it's about, you know, I'm, I'm terrified of what the future holds. And this is a way of holding on to the preciousness of the present and kind of being able to have a joyful approach to thinking about some of these really big challenges. So, you know, I think Carolyn's point, as she was talking before about, um, the relational nature of of what people need to build a strong democracy. We do a lot of a lot of that stuff, and we do a lot of seeding of ideas amongst the groups that we work with um, for how to how to lead with vision and how to feel energized um, by that vision. So we don't control a lot of actually on the ground work. We work with the um, our, our partners and members of the secretariat, so some climate groups, um, Australian Council of Social Service, um, who take the work that we do and, and run it through their existing networks and use, use our approach within their infrastructure. But then we also have this extremely kind of delightful element of the work, which is where people from the community come to me and say, oh, I saw your video or I read your vision and I cried and I I felt something. I want to take it here. So we had in, um, in the uh, council area of Frankston in Victoria recently, um, three community members kind of sprung up and said, we're really inspired by your nine pillars. Can we run, can we run on them? Can we can we use that as a platform? And we said, well, we don't endorse particular political parties or people, but like, yes, take it, go for it, run with it. And they then took the vision and took the approach of, of being vision-led and thinking systemically and ran a locally-based campaign that translated the nine pillars of Australia Remade into a, a very place-based, appropriate, um, response for Frankston and one of them actually got elected and so you know that's a thrill when you see the kind of deep theoretical work we do and the the vision-led work being picked up and taken by somebody. Um, similarly in the town of Gloucester in New South Wales they fought off not only fought off a coal mine but coal seam gas and then they used the vision and and some of our work to run their I think annual sustainability festival around the pillars 
but actually took the pillars this time and said, how come, you know, we're a divided town in some ways because, you know, we've had this fight against um, against a coal mine and so so people in the town are, it's, it's delicate. How do we bring people together around what we want? Um, and how do we, how do we start bridging those gaps? So I think that's, that's one of the hard parts of my work is I don't get to work really directly with communities on very specific projects, but I get to be part of creating the national energy for like, wow, the world could be amazing. And it already is. And, you know, here's the Indi example. We've talked to them quite a bit. Here's the Indi example. This is how you could take the spirit of that and run with it. And this is how you can be part of a bigger picture of people working for something. But you can do it in your way. And, and we're here to back you saying hope is hope and vision is not naive. It's essential um, and it's strategic. I think so, I just think this work is extraordinary. It's the combination of using joy and happiness and ideas of fun and play with really robust science um, and I think yeah. a mechanism that gives people support. Um, the nine pillars are obviously available on the website of Australia Remade. Can you just outline them for us? Yeah, so um, and just should say that um, these pillars were developed after listening to hundreds of people across the country and basically asking, you know, what what's the country of your dreams? And I think, Carolyn, you were saying before about the art of listening. I am so shocked and I shouldn't be, but every time we do a process like this, watching people come alive when they feel heard is a really empowering act for both of us, I think. Um, so, yeah, so the, the pillars were kind of co-created and very strongly you know, the number one is a first people's heart. So putting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders at, at the heart of who we are, um, a natural world for now and the future, an economy for the people. You know, that comes back to the idea of, you know, GDP is kind of an economy for some statistics or for some rich people. What does it mean to be for the people? Um, a society where all contributions count and every job has dignity. So, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, that your work feels valuable and valid whether or not you can be paid for it. Um, a diversity of people living side by side, a country of flourishing communities, a new dawn for women, a thriving democracy and a proud contributor to a just world. So you can have a look at those on the website and I just encourage anyone listening, like take them, run with them, copy them, plagiarise them, you know, develop them. It, it's not a, we can't have a static vision as a country. Um, but it's something to gather around. I think um, that idea of, of genuinely listening and taking seriously what people say and listening respectfully is so fundamentally important. And a lot of the research that I do is with children. And one of the things that people who observe any of the research or are involved in any of the re that research often say is how much children want to be listened to. And I think that's true of people for all ages, but often with children, that's so much of an issue because for so much of their lives in school and in their families, they're often not genuinely listened to. And so when there is an opportunity, children do engage so joyfully and with such creative ideas. And so I think these principles are just so important and so important to share right across our society, regardless of age or gender or ability or disability, you know, so that we are really engaging with people and, and genuinely engaging in that art of listening. But one of the things that strikes me is those words of vision, of joy, of fun, of connectedness to place are coming up in what both of you are saying. And Carolyn, could we go back to you? 
Um, and your example of, of Indi, do you think that's a model for for a process or an approach that can be used elsewhere? Or are there principles that we can kind of draw from Indi um, that could be used in other communities? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I've, I've just returned from a field trip um, with so traveling around um, northwestern New South Wales with a lot of communities asking exactly that question because they are fed up, but they they have energy, energy for change. Um, and I guess the the sort of message that that I would send to to people who feel like they'd like to to cr- recreate or or repair um, their their democratic system like the citizens in in India did is that, I don't think there's a blueprint here. I think there are some some broader principles, um, and I think one of the things that 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 the citizens in this movement in Indi talk about is that um, they didn't start with the idea that they were going to to overthrow the existing sitting member and that that they were going to sort of dive into this um, ultimately the world that, that that they were sort of rejecting in the beginning, um, and that they just wanted to to understand what the community wanted. Um, in terms of their vision and what sort of political process or democratic process did they expect and did they want to create. That was their starting point and they built from that a movement. And when the existing MP wasn't receptive to that, and in fact she's reported to have said that, that the people of India aren't interested in politics, um, the people in this movement said, well, well, that's not good enough and we want to find a representative who is receptive. So that was their starting point. And in other communities, it's not like that. They might actually have a receptive um, MP, but he or she might be in a party that, that's that's unable to, to, to sort of allow them the freedom to vote on particular issues. So a lot of communities around Australia that I are thinking in this space are, are trying to be more active with their MPs and trying to say, hey, where's your constituency work? You know, we expect our corporations and our governments to do great public engagement work. Where are our MPs? We don't really hold any particular kind of uh, expectations in that space and I think we should. It's not enough to just stand at the train stations or at the supermarkets. They have to do much more sophisticated connecting and people also have to – you know, step into that space and and be willing to engage. So yeah, I th- I think there's sort of some broad principles around making it making participation fun, making it easy, making it accessible, um, and and trying to build a a base for community engagement and not not trying to pitch one person is going to solve everything, whether that's a candidate or or um you know trying to to to, to have a protest movement around one single idea. I think things that bring people together, that work with joy, humour, that are playful, but that are also have some serious sides to it. Um, and, and we mustn't forget that the, the, the Indi electorate has put some big national issues on the table. Helen Haynes at the moment has an integrity bill. She's pushing forward community energy. So there are some serious issues underlining this community movement, but it's actually about having that base so there'd be some principles that I'd be putting forward. Carolyn, moving um, away from Indi and a bit further north, to me one of the loveliest and, and most powerful images in your book is of the knitting nanas against gas. Who are the nanas and how have they engaged in politics? Yeah, so here here I'd like to just acknowledge my one of my co-authors, Selena Khan, because we, we did this case study um, together um, and, and this work was really about 
uh, actually in the context of coal seam gas, a very divisive issue in many um, parts of the world, but particularly um, in, in Australia. And, and up up in the Narrabri region, there have been long-term sort of community protests around um, a proposed and now approved um, coal seam gas project. And the Knitting Nanas were actually formed up in Lismore. So there are a group of women who call themselves Nanas, but I guess you could say they're sort of postmenopausal women who sort of find themselves wanting to have a kind of, you know, uh, a, a, a narrative around um, care. You know, we care. We care about landscape. We care about children. We care about future generations. And this kind of character of the Nana is kind of hard not to appreciate. I mean, she's she's respectable um, and she's also sort of playful and she's not your average protester. And the Knitting Nanas really play with this character and they use this kind of disarming character of the Nana to sort of engage people um, in in conversations around, around climate and around coal seam gas. Um, and so their approach to protest is very disarming and inclusive, actually. Um, they also do playful things like sitting outside the MPs and knitting and they're not interested, I guess, in, in being in your face, but they bear presence, I guess, is one of their, their tactics. They just witness things. They go along to public hearings, they dress up and they just they just sit there and are there. And this bearing witness, being present is a big part of their uh, protest repertoire. And that might seem and seem strange, but they play with this humour and this character and that actually encourages people to listen because it's like, hey, what are these old women doing, you know? Not all of them are old actually and they often take along their grandchildren and thing, but they they play the nana image and this is kind of a point of accessibility for people in a, in a, in a pretty traumatised set of communities there that have been dealing with division. So some people we talk to in that community have been going to school drop-offs or sporting events or um, churches, and they can't. They they feel like they can't even talk about politics because it's so divisive. This proposal, and the knitting nanas have tried to work hard to sort of step around this this divisive technology of CSG and actually say, look, we care about country, we care about. Um, uh, you know, future generations. Um, can we have you know? Can we have a conversation? It's sort of their way of protesting and bearing witness uh, enables people to to have conversations and that's what they've really been trying to do. They're not trying to push a particular perspective, even though they have their own, obviously they're not um, pro-CSG, but they want to have open conversations with people and they do that through humour and being playful. Yeah, it's creating a safe space, isn't it, for a, new, for a conversation because once we can sit at the same table, we're more likely to find that sort of common ground. Exactly, yeah. A couple of weeks ago, we had the great pleasure of speaking to Guy Standing, um, who has some amazing things to say about a, a range of issues, including universal basic income. But he spent quite a bit of time talking about the commons. Millie, in the work that you do, how can the idea of the commons and the common good, um, how can this help with a community engagement for change? Yeah, I mean, so we're using the language of the public good rather than the commons, and you know, that's a whole <laughs> other conversation we could have about what language we use. And in, in some ways, I don't think it matters. In other ways, I think the language of the commons, just as a, a communications phrase, does carry some baggage with it. Um, and it, it carries historical baggage, it carries the baggage of, you know, you instantly think, oh, a tragedy of the commons, despite that actually, you know, 
not not being a correct analysis of how the commons are, are managed. Um, but if, if you take the spirit of that and, you know, calling it public good, I do really think it opens up a space because it's a question. You know, we don't have a decided outcome. You know, we, as I was saying before, we, we don't have a consensus in this country about why we do what we do. Um, and so the public good is really a question and, and is as an invitation to, to step into it. It's not a neutral space, but a space that doesn't yet have... Um, baggage or isn't held by a political party and strips back the question of how we get there and starts from, well, where are we and where, where do we want to go and what is what is best for all of us? And I think we'll have different answers for that, but there's a, a softness in that question. So I think the Commons as a language has real potential. It helps us get around the idea of interdependence. You know, COVID has shown us we are very interdependent. Um, and we are only as safe as the most vulnerable, um, and the, the commons is a is a way into that. Um, you know, the the idea of universalism again, the commons helps us into that conversation. So, I think it's I think it's a really important entry point, and it's 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 not talking about climate, and it's not talking about inequality. It's it's talking about something that everyone is public, everyone is a commoner, um, so we're all allowed in into that space, and. And just in that, wanting to pick up on what Carolyn was saying about, um, you know, the, the joy and the play is all very important, but it's also backed by by strategy and commitment to particular types of change and particular types of, of underlying thought and work. And, and that's something that I think we have to hold. There's a bit of a tension here, actually, around the openness of conversation, um, the, the genuine listening, the process, and thinking there are those, you know, we do have values at Australia Remade about where we want to shift the common agenda, you know. Um, and so allowing ourselves to at once be serious in our analysis of what needs to happen. So, we, you know, we've been talking about at Australia Remade, you know, we need to democratise, we need to decarbonise, we need to decolonise, um, we need to demarketize. So that's very much about that common space of, of how do we decouple what's really important from the market and we need to demonopolise and allowing that level of serious thinking to go hand in hand with with the play. So, I mean, I, I think Commons Public Good for us is, is an amazing neutral-ish entry point to enabling us all to participate. Yeah, it's like the nanas, it's finding some safe space, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Carolyn, how do these ideas of the commons and the common good or the public good play out in the communities that you're working in? And do you think they can be used in the repair of democracy? Yeah, well, in, in actually some other work that I've been doing, so not, not directly in this book, but it does speak to this, you know, is this recognition in a lot of communities that there are, there are problems, collective problems, that the market is not addressing or that government and formal civil society groups have sort of failed to address. And so while these groups that are trying to kind of actively uh, solve these collective problems, um, like a community energy group or a community-led recovery or community-led care facility, they're recognising a kind of public good that's not being well addressed by our public institutions or our market institutions. And so they mightn't use this language of public good, but they realise that collective problems need collective responses. And if our collective institutions aren't able to do that because they're not nimble enough or they're not um, 
responsive enough or they're not experimental or risk-taking enough, then then there's a lot of work happening in, in communities all around the world Um you know, to try and address these collective problems. I mean, you see this in the developing context all the time. I'm sure Sharon has seen this in her own research. But but you see, you, we saw this in COVID in in the UK, particularly where things were really getting out of hand in the first and now the second wave, where where there was all these mutual aid groups that just you know citizens were self organising and they were trying to create kind of care arrangements um, in a context where the government was just overwhelmed. So so I think these public good um, activities are, are alive and well. And I guess in the work that I've been doing with a colleague in the US, Albert Dezua, we've been looking at how how governments and, and I guess our democratic institutions can be more receptive to these kinds of initiatives because often a lot of them do sort of die out, but some of them do scale up and make enormous um, impacts on solving collective problems, particularly in the sort of social enterprise and civic enterprise space. So I think communities may not use this language of public good, but I think a lot of them do recognise that that they have to get together to solve some of these more complex problems. Throughout this series, we've been trying to, um, I guess, challenge the, the dominant paradigm that's still so influenced by neoliberal thinking, but also by financialised capital um, and putting a, a, a market value on things like time and care. Um, and I think this conversation just gives me at least such a sense of optimism about how we can start to really creatively rethink um, and how we can take different paths forward. And I wonder, as a, as a final question to each of you, what advice would you give to, to those who are listening and particularly perhaps those in power, should they happen to be listening, but also to communities around what first steps we need to take to really start this process? I think you've, you've started to map some of that out for us. But, you know, as that final takeaway message, what do we need to do first to make um, to, to, to make this optimism real in changing our communities. Um, Carolyn, can I ask you first? The big thing that I've seen in these communities is that people are stepping up and they're taking responsibility. So they've reached a point where it's not enough to just be fed up. They actually want to do something and be active. And so I would encourage people who feel frustrated about a particular issue or they are concerned to, to ask yourself, what, what can I do? group or, or initiative can I connect with? And if that doesn't exist, can I create the initiative? But to take responsibility for the problems that lie in front of us and not wait for the market or, or government or some formal civil society group to, to resolve it. Because I think our issues are so complex um, and that if, if you're recognising problems, then ask yourself, what can I do to to, to help address that. And that's a fabulously empowering message to leave people with, I think. Um, Millie, what's what's your advice on the first steps that we take? Yeah, I mean, mine are probably fairly similar. I think, I think one thing that has been useful for me is to think, you know, what are the types of capital that we have access to? You know, there's financial capital. There's, you know, most people have heard about social capital. So, you know, the connections that you have in your community. But I think we also need to think how much imagination capital have you got in your pockets? Like how willing are you to think of doing things differently? Um, and also what's the courage capital that you have? You know, it can be really hard to take that first step and think, oh, I'm just little, I don't know what to do. But finding the courage, you know, looking for the loose change courage in your couch or whatever um, to 
to start that conversation and to do it with other people. So I think, you know, what Carolyn's saying of stepping up and, and taking up space, but also doing it with other people because it's going to be so much more fun and also you'll you'll have much more courage to do that. Um, for people who are interested, we've got some resources on our website um, and under the Remaker U banner for how to start having some of the conversations. And I think we can often be afraid that, oh, it's just another talk fest, but conversations connect us and then help us work out where to go and how to find that collective power to become an Indi example or, you know, be in Carolyn's next book. So um, I think thinking about what resources you have and including courage and imagination in there as as the impetus to take that first step. What an extraordinary conversation with these two women. It would be fantastic to keep talking to Carolyn Hendricks and Millie Rooney for quite a lot longer, but we will need to wrap up tonight's conversation. Um, I'd like to thank both of you for joining us. You've given us some amazing I think maps would be a good word for how to think about community engagement. I think we hear that there's a tremendous appetite for change and you've given us some of the solutions that will take help us to, to practically achieve those conversations on a local level. So I'm so glad that both of you had time to join us tonight. Um, thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, Sharon, was that, that was a wonderful discussion. Tell me, what are your thoughts from speaking with Carolyn and Millie today? That really was a terrific conversation. And it felt to me like the perfect conversation to have at this point in the series because it gave some really practical ideas about what can happen within communities. And I think that's just so important. And I feel a real sense of optimism. Yep. Now, some of the conversations we've had, you kind of feel a bit, oh, gee, <laughs> you know, oh. this is a big task, but this is an optimistic conversation. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think the last couple of weeks we've been given some extraordinary examples of, of the ra radical changes that could significantly improve well-being in our society. But between these two people today, we've re really been given a framework a framework that suggests that time and place are important and that the relationships that we can build in with adequate time and understanding of our place might be very uh, significant to in terms of a framework for achieving change. And I think the striking thing is how many similarities, sometimes phrased differently, yeah. but how many similarities there have been across all of the speakers. Yep. Absolutely. No, I think we see those themes again of respect for individual and active listening um, and the benefits of building collaboration. I, I, I the, the language that Millie Rooney uses about love and play, we, I find that really inspiring when we're talking about difficult and often emotionally distressing uh, issues like climate change, like injustice and poverty. Uh, the, to, to imagine uh, that the solutions to those uh, problems might involve making people feel happier and feel better, uh, I find that so deeply inspiring. And I was really struck by her idea that we build confidence in our community, that we are, can all be cared for. And I think the coronavirus pandemic has probably brought that further to the front of mind for so many Australians and I know around the world. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think the reality for many people, despite, you know, the way in which um, in Australia, societies and governments have stepped up to support people during COVID-19. I think for many people, they still don't feel that sense of confidence. Um, and that's because their experiences don't give them confidence. So this is a way of really turning it around and beginning to build that confidence through support and through care. Imagination and courage, the two other key phrases that I, I really think need to be, uh, to be uh, used again. 
Um, I'm always struck that we've got fantastic scientific principles and economic ideas uh, and that for this particular juncture in our human history, that it's the time for imagination and for courage. Absolutely. And some love and joy. And love and joy (laughs) and play. So... uh, I would encourage anyone listening today to reach out to us to give you us your thoughts on the, the Policy Pod series so far on wellbeing economics. And there are a variety of ways that you can reach out to us. Uh, you can reach out to us through Twitter, and we're on Twitter at, at APPS Policy Forum, or you can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. Uh, one of the best ways to engage with this particular group is to join our face group, Uh, Facebook group, which is the Policy Forum pod. And if you type that into the search bar, it'll take you to the group and you'd be very welcome to join us. If you're listening to us through one of your podcast streaming devices, through Acast or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are, we would love it if you left us a review. And I'd just like to take this opportunity to remind the listeners that we will be back again next week. Next week will be, I think, the final for this year of the Wellbeing Economic Series, and I hope we can bring together the themes of the ideas that have been discussed over the last six six episodes. And so uh, we've got one special guest joining us uh, and a few fantastic surprises. So I know I'm looking forward to next week. Sharon? I'm very excited about next week as well. And um, I'm looking forward over summer to re-listening to some of these pods. So I encourage our listeners to do the same. I think this is definitely a lying on the beach under a tree uh, series of podcasts. So I hope everybody else finds that as enjoyable as we have. So from me, Sharon Bessel, bye-bye for now. And bye-bye from Anagreta Hunter too. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.